0: Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with, M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Dealmaker Diaries. Today we have with us Chad Griffiths. Chad has been in industrial real estate since 2005. Over the past 16 years, he's completed over 500 transactions with clients, ranging from local companies to large institutional owners. He's proud to be a perennial top producer and a partner with his firm. In addition to earning S.I.O.R. and C.C.I.M. designations, He's earned a diploma in urban land economics from UBC and an MBA from Thompson Rivers University. He's given numerous interviews locally and nationally regarding the commercial real estate market and has had articles published in Forbes, Western Investor, and Real Estate Magazine. Chad recently started a YouTube channel about industrial real estate where he shares his knowledge and passion for the industry. So let's give a warm welcome to Mr. Chad Griffiths. Let's go. So, Chad, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on, Donald. I look forward to talking about industrial real estate.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, briefly, can you give us um, kind of a breakdown
1: of um, who, you are, who you are and your experience in the industry and what you're working on currently? Yeah. So I got into the industry as a broker in 2005. So I guess that's coming on 17 years or so right now. Mm -hmm. And then I started investing in my own properties in 2014. So still an active broker. I still do that uh, every day, but I've been building a portfolio with some partners uh, pretty much with the goal of adding a property every year. So hopefully just Mm -hmm. keep adding that property at that continuous frequency and still enjoy my time as a broker as well.
0: Okay. And are you doing, um,
1: strictly industrial commercial or are you doing any other types of commercial for your personal portfolio right now just industrial uh there there might be an appetite to move into other areas down the road uh i mean industrial is getting pretty hot and when you have a hot market like that the opportunities tend to dry up because there's just more people chasing the same opportunities so it might be something we'd consider as a group down the road but as of right now our, our focus is just solely industrial
0: Okay. And briefly, um, for those who might not have a a vast understanding of um, what industrial real estate is, what, what kind of properties are included in industrial?
1: Yeah. And it's a great question because most people actually don't have any familiarity with industrial real estate because they don't really need to, unless they work in a factory or, or they know somebody that does, chances are they've never driven in an industrial park or been inside an industrial building. But I like to say that there's the full spectrum of properties available within industrial real estate, all the way down from a 2000 square foot a warehouse condo all the way up to a 4 million square foot manufacturing facility like the one in Boeing just outside of Seattle. And I typically group industrial real estate into three subcategories. The first is warehousing. And I'm sure you're seeing this all over Tokyo and back in Austin when you're there as well. There's these, man- or these warehousing properties like an Amazon fulfillment center popping up mm-hmm. everywhere. Usually it's close to the airport, but it's probably off a main road. So you're seeing these buildings all the time. These are big distribution centers or fulfillment centers, but a warehouse can really be anything from like a small property all the way up to a massive distribution center. The whole idea is that things are stored in there for future use. The other type of property is manufacturing properties. These are where things are made, manufactured, assembled. If you could picture a building where raw materials come in, manufactured, assembled, either put into a semi-raw material or into a finished good and then sent out. That's kind of a manufacturing property. And, And then the third one, kind of a miscellaneous category is flex properties. So these are all the properties that are going to be zoned for industrial use, but it might not be conducive for either manufacturing or warehousing. So you might see a car dealer. uh, You might see a bottle depot. I've even seen churches in, in these flex properties, Uh, even hundred percent office space in a, in an industrial zone building, but just built out all for office. So that flex category is kind of the catch-all for everything that isn't neatly defined as manufacturing or warehousing, even though in theory it could be used for either one of those as well. Okay.
0: Okay. And, um, why, why is um, industrial hot right now and why is that your preference for investing?
1: Yeah, I think the story actually goes back uh, probably a couple decades now where we started seeing that e-commerce starting to develop. In the early 2000s, kind of right out of after the, uh, the dot-com bubble, some of the companies that emerged, like Amazon and others, set up these sophisticated websites for e-commerce. And over the years, this this goes predates the pandemic that we, we're just going through right now, over the years, there's been a shift to e-commerce, away from those traditional brick-and-mortar retailers to now people ordering online, have it delivered to their house so with that big ramp up of people ordering stuff online had to come a considerable amount of warehouse infrastructure to facilitate the supply chain so property or a product coming all the way from china uh, overseas to north america that has to be stored in a warehouse along the way and because of that, there is an undersupply of industrial real estate to handle all of this, and that's why we're seeing shortages. Even even Austin, which you're very familiar with right now, is building a considerable amount of uh, of industrial real estate uh, just mm-hmm. to keep up with all the all the demand. So we're seeing this not just in in uh, coastal cities, which are everybody's heard of the the backup of ships off the port of L.A. where 40% of the product coming into North America goes through one of those ports there's a log jam of ships there those pro- those markets have a uh, sub 1% vacancy but even some of those inland markets uh such as Austin or Chicago or or Atlanta, these markets are seeing a boom right now as well, just because all this product flows through a warehouse. So they, I, I think breaking industrial real estate down in those subcategories is important because if if someone just hears that industrial real estate is booming, that doesn't necessarily mean that the manufacturing side is booming, nor does it necessarily mean that, that warehouse is overperforming everything else. It just requires a little bit deeper of a dive to see what type of of data you're working with, but for the most part, the warehouse market that catering to the e-commerce side and not the manufacturing side that has seen historically low vacancy rates. And that's partly because this pandemic has even further reinforced people's buying habits of going to the store and just ordering it online.
0: Okay. And to your point, so when we talk about how, especially there's been a boom in e-commerce, on um, the past, going on three years now with the pandemic um how has that affected the warehouses factory workers is that how are they dealing with their employee situation as far as pandemics are are, are a lot of them using robotics where they can they don't have to worry about a lot of those issues that retail and office space may have to worry about
1: yeah, that's, that's a great point. And, and you clearly have some good knowledge on this because that, that's a great point to bring up about how the robotics is a developing trend right now. It, it is going to continue getting more sophisticated and a bigger component of warehouses going forward. But for right now, it's mostly the large companies that are starting to institute this. And it's mm-hmm. going to take a while before they displace workers at a, at a noticeable scale. It's actually the opposite right now where there's a shortage of workers, Uh, not just manufacturing companies, but warehousing companies all over the world are struggling to attract workers right now. And that's leading to these delays in ports because they don't have enough truck drivers. They don't have enough staff in the warehouses to put everything away and pick it when it needs to get sent out. There's actually a labor shortage. So it's, it's interesting that we're in this interesting time in the world where technology is starting to catch up and we're going to start seeing more advanced robotics in warehouses going forward, but it hasn't hit that tipping point yet where it's going to start actually affecting labor. But on the other hand, we actually don't even have enough labor at the moment. So it will be interesting to see what actually happens in this regard as labor eventually does catch up. And then right at the same time, does that also coincide with technology catching up where a lot of these robotics can actually displace workers? So interesting time right now, but the, the big part of this bottlenecks that we're seeing all over the world right now in the supply chain, a good portion of it is due to labor shortages.
0: Okay. And Chad, what, what kind of, um, industrial spaces are you adding to your portfolio? What kind are attractive to you right now?
1: For the most part, I'm either in the manufacturing or the flex space. So I'm in a market that's similar to Texas. We've got a heavy oil and gas presence. Right. So a good portion of our industrial real estate market caters towards that manufacturing or the oil and gas production side. So I've been focused more on that. And also as a, as a small private investor, I don't have the resources to go and buy a $50 million distribution center that would be leased to Amazon. And a lot of those, the big warehouse space, just by nature of the size are going to be a lot more expensive. Whereas we can bite off They call it a 20,000 square foot manufacturing property that's leased to a really good tenant for long-term we could buy that at an affordable rate. So we just to even give you an example, one we just closed on earlier this year, uh, it was roughly a $4.1 million sale, multi-tenant industrial property with, uh, we got seven tenants in there. And uh, they they range from automotive to uh, light distribution to even quasi retail in there. Uh, I would say that that one's pretty good representation of a flex property, just because we have so many different types of uses in there but we bought a property last year, which is a single tenant uh, manufacturing property that has one single tenant in there on a longer term lease. And that'd be a true manufacturing property. So I'd say just by nature of us being a little bit smaller uh, in comparison to call it an institutional grade investor, we're, we're going after that. Uh, But it's also just a reflection of our market in general. If you're in, if you're in LA or New Jersey or one of these busy port cities, the warehousing side is going to be a much bigger percentage of the overall market than it would be in ours. Okay.
0: And and when you're analyzing or looking at the numbers on a deal, what kind of um, returns do you want to see for any deal that you want to, take down?
1: Yeah, I would say the first thing that I always look for is just the price per square foot. Uh, because I, I've i just learned along the way, both in, as my experience as a broker and as an, an investor, that there's always going to be the high probability that the tenant that you have in there is going to leave. So whether you have a five-year tenant in there, or whether you have a month-to-month tenant, you've got to run the exercise of, of buying that property for the likelihood that it's going to be vacant at some point. So I'll always just look at a price per square foot basis first, just to make sure that that's on par with what comparable types of properties are going for. And if I'm getting it at a, at a competitive price per square foot basis, that's, that's essentially protecting my downside risk. So if the tenant does leave and it takes me some time to backfill it, as long as I know that I've got a property competitive with the rest of the market, I should be able to release it and at least mitigate any downside risk that I have, or Mm -hmm. I could sell it. All things being equal, you can never predict the future and and everything that that can derail those plans. But at least if I have a plan going in that I'm buying it on the basis that it might become vacant at some point down the road, then I at least have that that downside covered. Then I'll start running into just doing a ten-year uh, discounted cash flow analysis. So where do I think that the rates are going to be? Where do I see some upside on future escalations? What do I th- see as a terminal cap rate? Run run a model on that, making some assumptions that I can. And, and if if I can get an IRR in the in the mid-teens, uh, I think that that's a that's a good outlook for it. But I also am skeptical with any ten-year. Uh, pro forma just from the sheer amount of assumptions that have to be made and yeah. you know who someone making a 10-year pro forma called in in 2013 uh, who would have been able to forecast that there'd be a pandemic at the end of yeah. that and and what that would do so I I don't put as much value on on what I'm going to materialize in, in an internal rate of return as much as I want to make sure that I'm buying a, an asset at a fair value. I have the ability to increase rents provided we see just general inflation and, and, the, and a healthy market. And I feel that if I can hold property long enough, I can iron out a lot of those unexpected events, such as a pandemic coming up. And, and with that, I, just, I, I try to, every property I look at, can I hold this property essentially forever? And by that, uh, if I were to Die and my kids take it over. Will they mm. still have an asset that they want to own? And and with that, I I know that that maybe sounds a little elusive and less strategic than what uh, what a more sophisticated investor will. But I've got I've got time on my side. I don't need to be buying uh, with having a, a sunset clause where I have to sell it after ten years because that's what investors will want me to do. We're invested uh, alongside our our own capital. Uh, with, Mm. with every property that we have. So my, my strategy is, is buy hold as long as you can pay down the mortgage. Hopefully you can get some top line rental escalations. Uh, Hopefully you can see some appreciation uh, and maybe even a little compression on the cap rates to sell it down the road. I think that that's a good strategy for, for long-term success, but I'm, I'm just a little skeptical of, of saying, well, we're forecasting a 15% IRR. When there's so many assumptions baked into that, that it, it can become unrealistic pretty quickly. So I'm more of a buy the right property, buy it with something that you're comfortable holding long term, and just hold on for dear life.
0: And are you are you guys pretty particular about um what kind of tenants you want in there? I mean, say they're you know manufacturing something that you don't think is going to be feasible. It's going to keep them in business long. Would you say uh? We'll we'll take a pass on you. Are you pretty much open to anybody who wants to lease that space?
1: I would say it's largely driven by market economics. so if if you're in a market where the vacancy rate is ten percent, I'll be a lot less picky than if I'm in a market that's two percent uh, in in a two percent market, I'll be very selective and and I probably would want to see a a a company that has longevity and they've got a healthy balance sheet and I, and I can have a degree of comfort that they'll continue paying their rent in a 10% market. I'd be a lot more open to taking a flyer on a new company. But to that point though, absolutely. I'd be very diligent on what type of use goes in there. And I typically try and steer away from any heavier use, particularly one that has a risk of, of contamination. And there's some notorious ones out there like Chrome plating is really bad. Uh, and, and not necessarily related to industrial, although there are some that go into industrial buildings is dry cleaning. There's a byproduct of that process called called perk. And if that's not handled correctly and it gets into the into the groundwater, it can just wreak havoc. Uh, and I, I, I as a general rule of thumb, I'd want to uh, stay away from any use that has the potential to cause contamination and, and the environmental remediation that be necessary down the road. I mm. want to steer clear from that as much as possible.
0: Okay. And are you investing only in Canada or are you in the U S as well?
1: I'm only in Canada right now, uh, but I've looked at a couple of markets in the U S with some partners. So we've looked at, uh, South Carolina, we've looked mm. at some areas in Florida. Uh, I think that, uh, If, if I were to invest in the States, I'd probably want to go into that Sunbelt region, just because I think a lot of movement is going to go there. I think a lot of people are going to migrate from Northern U S down to those Southern States and industrial is driven by large part by population, especially warehousing, right? If you, if a hundred thousand people move into a region of Florida, those hundred thousand people are some portion of them are going to be shopping online. It's going to require more warehouse space. I'd I'd be focused on those areas if I were looking to expand into the U.S.
0: Yeah, and there is a strong trend towards both of those areas. So, yeah, definitely.
1: Well, in Texas as well. Texas is a really hot market too. Uh, I think a lot of people are are fleeing California for various reasons. uh, And and Texas seems to be a pretty attractive state right now for a lot of them.
0: Yeah, and you see Samsung. They're building a huge facility right outside of Mm -hmm. Austin. So, yeah, absolutely. So, so if I asked you, what would be the three biggest reasons for if someone look, is looking to get into industrial, what would be three of the biggest reasons to add industrial real estate to your portfolio?
1: Uh, So the biggest one is there's less competition. So for people that have considered or already actively involved in multifamily, you'll know how competitive it is. Like you'll have Mm. anyone that owns three houses that you're competing with because they want to start doing multifamily up to a professional, like a doctor that just wants to place some money. You're competing with a lot of people when you're in that multifamily space. And industrial real estate, just because it's it's a little bit more complex, or at least unfamiliar, it doesn't have nearly as much competition. So I've, at least until this point, industrial is becoming hot and I find more and more capital chasing industrial now more than ever. Uh, but at least up until right now, it's been a lot less competitive. Uh, the second thing that I'd say is that you've got longer term leases on average. So the first property that I bought in 2014, which I still own. Uh, I've had two tenants in there. Uh, one was in there for five years. And the second one that, uh, they ended up closing down their business and retiring. The second one that's been in there has been in there for two and a half years now. And I've probably been at that property in the last seven or eight years. I've probably been there less than 10 times. So you can appreciate anyone that owns multifamily. If you have a property for seven or eight years, how many times would you have to be at that property? I'm guaranteeing it's a lot more than 10 times. So it's it's more common to see longer-term leases in industrial as opposed to either month-to-month or year-to-year leases that come up in residential. And then the third thing is just a lot less management-intensive so the one property that that I mentioned that has the manufacturing company in there. It's a single tenant. It's about a $3 million building. We have one tenant in there. It's a Fortune 1000 tenant. Uh, they pay their rent by pre-authorized debit every single month. Uh, so that property I've probably been at three or four times, maybe. I don't even know if I've been there. And that's one tenant that we have to manage. If something happens at their space, they take care of it. It's all written into their lease that they're required for any internal maintenance or anything that comes up. And if you were to have the equivalent called a $3 million multifamily property, how many tenants would you have to be managing in that $3 million property? How many headaches would you have? How many times would you be getting calls, checks, balancing issues coming up? versus one $3 million building with one tenant in it. It's just so much easier to manage. And if we wanted to, we could actually even hire a management company and charge the tenant because it's just the nature of how commercial and industrial leases are structured. They pay for all operating expenses of the building over and above what their net rent is. So if we wanted to, we could actually put in a property manager and charge the tenant to pay for the property manager. So I think those would be the three main reasons on, on why I like industrial and I've had both. I had multifamily property, uh, before I started investing in industrial. And for me, it's, it's just a, it's an absolute no brainer for me to, to continue doing industrial as opposed to going back to multifamily. But I will stress that that's just me. That's that's what's worked for me. That's not necessarily going to work for everybody. Some someone could get into industrial and get burned, have a really bad experience, and hate it, and be very successful and profitable in multifamily. So it's that's just what's worked for me, and for those reasons.
0: Yeah, I mean, and in regards to getting burned, I mean that's going to happen in a commercial as well. I mean, yeah, I mean you get in multifamily, you, I mean, I mean I think it's best part of the learning experience. So I mean it's going to happen. So um closing a deal what's the average time to close a deal in industrial does it pretty much mirror commercial multifamily about 60 to 90 days or is it a lot more difficult
1: i it, it after you have all your conditions or uh waived so after you've satisfied all your due diligence you could you could close it relatively quickly the process can be can be a lot more complex that you probably need more reports so with multifamily you'll still need some sort of building inspection you'll need an appraisal you probably won't need an environmental site assessment uh, whereas industrial you're going to need to have an environmental site assessment at least a phase one if there's any reason to believe that there's contamination then you might need to go to a phase two where they actually physically test the soil the, so there's a lot more nuance in there it can take it can take considerably longer, uh, if you have a property with, with issues in it, uh, where it looks six months to a year, isn't crazy, but those would also be the outliers providing the, the seller has some of those reports recently available, or you can move through that process without any hiccups. You could probably go through your due diligence in two months or so, and then close in thereafter. But there's, there's the, chance that you could run into that one in 10 or one in a hundred property where there is some hair on it. And that, that just takes considerably longer to work through the process. Okay. All
0: right. So I'm a listener and I'm listening to this podcast and you've really piqued my interest. So I want to go out and look for my first industrial property. How, How do I go about doing that? How do I buy my first industrial property?
1: The very first thing that I'd recommend is to be very patient. Uh, and, and I think it's a temptation for real estate investors in general that they, they want to start looking for deals and they, they just want get, to get moving on something. I would say with industrial the best thing that you can do to, again, protect that downside risk is to be patient and realize that it could take several months, if not several years before you actually find a property that you're comfortable with particularly for that first one, an experienced and industrial investor might be able to move on a property in a day. They might have uh, something come across their desk and they're willing to write an offer on it that day. But until you have a high degree of comfort on what industrial real estate is, how it functions, how it works for the end user, the tenant that's actually going to pay the rent. I think it's it's actually dangerous and and perhaps reckless to even rush into buying an industrial property. So I would be patient and commit to learning everything that you can about. It. So start studying your local market or, or wherever you want to invest. Start getting tr- uh, trends on what's happening with vacancy, what's happening with absorption, what are rental rates doing, what type of tenants are active in the market, what deals are happening, what lease deals are happening, and start really understanding the the, the micro economy, so what's happening actually in your backyard, as well as a macro economy. So what are some of the trends happening in industrial? Uh, are ceiling heights going higher? If ceiling heights are, or call it 40 feet, and the building that you're looking at has is, is 18 feet, is that going to be a problem? So once you have a full understanding of macroeconomic trends, the microeconomic trends, and you feel comfortable that you can start uh, jumping into the market, I would even still recommend uh, partnering with somebody that has some experience. So find somebody local in your market that, so if it's, it's Austin, like uh, yourself or Tokyo, find someone that has active experience in that market that knows industrial real estate and see if they would partner with you on a deal and their contribution might be, uh, knowledge, uh, their contribution might be knowledge and money, whatever it is. Find some way uh, to have someone mentor you for, for another way of describing it, because industrial real estate can be an amazing opportunity. And, and I've done well by it, but there's also tremendous risk. And I think you could look at it as a pendulum. Multifamily, there's there's maybe call it a five, 10% risk. If things go really bad, there's maybe a five to 10% upside. In industrial, you can have some pretty good returns, but you can also have some pretty big losses. So I think Mm -hmm. if you're a student of the game and you study everything you can and you get to know everything you can about the market, and you have somebody that's coming along with you either as a mentor or an advisor or even better, a partner, I think you've got a much better chance of success.
0: Okay, great advice. Are there lots of networking groups and conferences out there in regards to industrial, like there is multifamily, for instance?
1: Yeah, not nearly as many as multifamily, but one that I'd recommend is uh, NAIOP and it's uh, uh, N-A-I-O-P. Their website is NAIOP.org. So Mm -hmm. it used to be an acronym that stood for the National Association of Industrial and Office Properties. They've dropped that acronym and now it's just the Commercial Real Estate Development Association, I believe. Uh, They've got a heavy focus on industrial. Like that's the majority of, of what memberships involved in there. They've got chapters all over North America and the meetings are, they usually have like a luncheon or a lunch and learn or a seminar. Uh, They're very well attended Uh, in, in my market anyways. It's not uncommon to see architects and bankers and lawyers and, and uh, other uh, developers property owners there's the full spectrum of, of people that come out so that'd be the first one that i'd recommend to people if they want to uh, start diving into it okay awesome all right so um
0: before i let you go let's hop into the lightning round and see um see what's in the under the tank here sounds good all right so so chad um what book or books have greatly influenced your life
1: Oh, yeah. Great question to start. I I love to read. I I usually read a book a week. Instead of talking about just one recently, I'll talk about probably the one that, that started my love for learning. And that goes back 25 years or so now to high school. I had a teacher that introduced me to a book called Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. And, uh, I don't know if it's even a good book anymore. I would be curious to see if I reread it right now, if I actually enjoyed it or if if it just came across as, as more pedantic, but, uh, that book sparked a curiosity in me to, to be the reader that I am today. So yeah, that was the one.
0: Okay. Fahrenheit 451. I'll have to check that out. All right.
1: And how has a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you a greater success later? Yeah. Well, talking about downside risk, uh, one property that I bought, the second property that I actually ever bought, uh, ended up having to sell it for about a 15% loss, uh, after owning it for five years. And it was, it was a careless mistake that we made, uh, by not evaluating what that property would be worth if it were vacant. And, uh, that's ultimately what, what led us to having to sell it at at a loss. And, and that's shaped my, what I, what I suggest to people. And it's also shaped my own investment philosophy of always making sure that you protect that downside risk before you start thinking about how good things can be. Hmm, definitely.
0: Okay. And if you could have a billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say?
1: Uh, well, I, I love talking about industrial real estate and I've got a, uh, I've got a YouTube channel where I where I talk about it. So not not to give a shameless plug, but I mean, if I were to have a billboard, I'd probably put a QR code to my to my uh, YouTube <laughs> website on there. That's probably what I would do, and purely self interest there.
0: Yeah, speaking to that, I, I was actually um, in central Tokyo about a month ago, and somebody did just that. They had a billboard with a huge QR code on it, and it actually worked. I got my phone and actually was able to scan it. So that's actually
1: do somebody actually have any- did they say what it was about or is it just a QR code?
0: Yeah, it had the branding of the company and then uh, the QR code to go in there. But
1: yeah, I think even without just a QR code, it'd, it'd pique a lot of people's curiosity, right? If I saw a billboard that just had a QR code and nothing else, I would down, I would click on it for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I'd just i just have to see well. what it was about. <laughs> but yeah, the company, uh, they definitely ahead of me because I would probably want to put some contact information on there, so have some context, but yeah, good for them for doing that. Yeah, for sure.
0: All right. And what, what is a habit or routine that you love?
1: Uh, yeah, like I mentioned, I read a lot. So in addition to just reading books, I, I read every morning on the news. So not not in mainstream news, because I, I hate the mainstream media, but in ter- but more just in the context of what's happening in the industrial real estate space. There's a few publications I follow. I just try to read quarterly reports, anything that I can just to broaden my horizon on what's happening in the industrial real estate market. Uh, I, I do that every morning and that's, that's served me quite well. Okay. And, and chat, what's your favorite place to think big? I, uh, Probably what, right before I go to bed actually and, and maybe that's not the best time to, to be thinking big when you're trying to get your mind to to slow down. but right as I'm lying in bed that's that's usually what I try to think about is what am I going to be doing the next day? what are some ways that I can be thinking uh, differently than how I approached it today? Uh, I actually that as strange as it may sound, I actually get more relaxed when I start thinking about big plans that I have. So right before I fall bit, fall asleep is probably probably the most likely.
0: Yeah, I mean you're definitely on to something now. I have read that the best times to to think about things like that is right when you wake up or right before you go to bed, because it just gets you in that in that mindset. So okay. And what have you become better at saying no to?
1: Everything. I uh, everything. <laughs> I, I was, I was probably one of those yes guys for a good portion of my life where I would just, I would try to say yes to everything consciously. Like it wasn't a bad habit. I just consciously was I trying to help people out wherever I can. And uh, if, if someone had a question or someone needed needed help with something, I'd just intentionally try to say yes. Uh, I, and to some extent, I, I still do want to want to help people, but the busier you get and the more you have on your plate, the more people are asking you for stuff. And uh, I've just learned that saying no is, it can sometimes uh, hurt someone's feelings or, or cause some ripples, but it's at the end of the day, you've got to be very careful and calculating with the amount of time and energy that you have. So I, I say no to a lot more things than I say yes to these days.
0: Absolutely. I agree hundred percent. All right, and last last one before we hop off. Um, what important truth do very few people agree with you on?
1: Uh, okay, great great question to end on. Without without drawing it out too much, I one thing that I really believe in is that uh, and, and respect. Not, I believe in and respect is that everybody has different opinions and that's not bad just because someone has a different opinion than me. Doesn't mean that I can't, can't have a civil conversation with them or respect their opinion. So I typically try to stay completely apolitical. I don't like uh, politicizing things because on the other end of the table, there might be someone with a completely different view than me. Uh, but I still respect, uh, and, and in some cases might even love who that person is. So to put my own political bias in, in front of any healthy dialogue or conversation, I typically just try to stay apolitical. And that's, especially like in, in the U S that's not overly common because people Mm -hmm. do like to be partisan And, and you, you find people that are staunchly Republican or staunchly Democrat. And they take the approach that if you're not with us, you're against us. I kind of take the approach that I want to have a healthy conversation with everybody. No matter, no matter what my own opinion is, I'm genuinely interested in hearing what their thoughts on it are with no preconceived bias or me trying to get my point in to, to, give a rebuttal. I just genuinely want to hear what other people have to say and and I think that that's been that's been a healthy mindset for me because I don't have all that baggage that comes with having to fight the party for the fight fight for the Republican party or fight for the Democrat party. I'm just I just want to hang out and and hear someone's story. And and to me that's that's much more important than having a strong political conviction.
0: Yeah, that's an awesome perspective because yeah, it seems like yeah, to your point in the US a lot of people's whole identity is tied to a political party. And, and like you said, it's just not productive at all. So yeah, awesome perspective. All right. So Chad, before we hop off, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, check out your YouTube channel. How, how can they go about doing that? Go ahead and pull up that YouTube channel and any other ways to get in contact?
1: Yeah. So I started YouTube channel a year and a half ago, just to talk about industrial real estate. I, I figured that it's natural to have have a a channel talking about something I'm so passionate about and, and hopefully knowledgeable about. Uh, so I just try to give as much value as I can with no expectation in anything uh, in return. I don't talk about the company I work for. I don't talk about even what city I live in. My whole goal with it is to just try and build a community where I'm providing as much value as I can. And I hope other people chime in and, and perhaps round out, areas where I might not have as much knowledge. So uh, if you just search uh, my name, Chad Griffiths in YouTube, or just search industrial real estate, uh, I'm sure one of my videos will come up and just uh, love it. If you uh, check it out and smash that like button, if it's of value.
0: Okay. I'll definitely subscribe. And I'm sure our listeners will as well. And um, any other way, if they wanted to reach out and get in touch with you, email, phone number or website, they can check out
1: Yep. Uh, LinkedIn, I'm also active on as well. Uh, I'll send, I I don't know if I sent you that link already, Donald, but I'll, I'll send it to you if I didn't. Or email is uh, Griffiths, C-R-E at gmail.com. And I check my email daily. So any questions pop up, I'm always happy to reply. All right. Awesome.
0: All right, Chad. So thanks so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed our chat. Some very good, um, helpful information for our listeners. And I'm sure you actually piqued a lot of people's interest in um, industrial real estate. So thanks for that. Let's definitely
1: stay in touch. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me on. Those were very well thought out questions as well. So I thank you for those.
0: All right, Chad, you have a good one. We'll talk again soon. Thanks
1: again. Thanks, Donald. All
0: right, thanks. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard earned capital to work, head on over to our website, G1CGRP.com and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves.